This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Well, what is grit? If you go by Penn psychology professor Angela Duckworth, then it has to deal with passion and perseverance. She chronicles how grit can be a very important piece to both education and future success in her book called Grit, The Power of Passion and Perseverance. Angela was also a 2013 MacArthur Fellow for her work in this arena, and she joins us here in the studio right now. Nice to meet you. Thank you for coming in. Hello. Thank you for having me. Thank you. So this correlation between grit really kind of affecting our our successes and part of a lot of what you talk about is is kids in school. Where did it really get started for you? Where did, where did the idea have its genesis? I mean, I could date it back to being a teacher, teaching math in the New York City public schools and seeing a lot of kids who just by sitting next to them and talking to them at lunchtime, you knew were were smart enough to learn everything you needed to teach them, but, mm-hmm. but still weren't succeeding, weren't fulfilling that potential. I could date my interest in grit to that point, but I would be uh, probably more complete if I dated it to childhood. I I grew up with a father who was obsessed with achievement, and I think I, uh, you know, maybe modeled or inherited an interest in what makes people successful from him. But taking a job in in the New York public school system after, I guess, you you were working in a corporate community, I guess that required a little bit of grit in itself, correct? Yeah, I think the decision in some ways looked like a a left turn or a detour, but in many ways, you know, was actually just getting back to what was actually more meaningful to me as a person. I had spent my entire college career working Mm -hmm. with kids and the community in my spare time. And right after college, I started a summer school for low-income children and ran that full-time for two years. So in some ways, maybe the corporate world was the digression. Does does this then, the, the idea, and let's focus on schools for a little bit, does it, does it mean that in some respects, maybe we need to have a little bit of a change of philosophy in how we teach in schools and in some respects, maybe what we teach in schools? Well, I would like to say, as somebody who studies an individual's capacity to to work very hard and stay focused on things that matter to them, I would like to say, yes, a change in focus, but maybe not the change in focus that most people would think I mean. Okay. So a lot of times I hear, oh, grit. Well, if it really matters how hard you work, now now I'm going to put you know the responsibility on the shoulders of these kids. And if they don't do well, it's even more their fault than I used to think. And mm-hmm. that's exactly the wrong message, I think. I think we need to, as educators and as, you know, all of us in society, because our kids are our future, uh, I think we need to say when a kid is not focused, when they are not achieving well, the first question is, you know, what are we doing that that isn't actually working? Mm -hmm. So I, I think the idea is, can we be more psychologically wise about what we teach and how we teach? And that isn't always just, uh, in fact, it rarely is uh, just like exhorting kids to work harder. It, it, it almost seems like it's a little bit of, of that level to drive, that drive that people have. And you talk a little bit about the book where where talent obviously is a, is kind of a factor in this, but sometimes it's not always talent. It has to be actually, in many cases, more the drive 
to be able to kind of reach the goals that, that you want to get. I mean, it's not that talent doesn't matter. I, I actually believe that talent exists. And, right. you know, it would be a wonderful thing, I guess. I mean, some would, some people would prefer a world where we're all equally talented in, in everything. Right. Whether you prefer that world or not, I don't think that world exists. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what, how, whatever your talent, you, you have to engage to, to realize that talent. We all have seen talent wasted. And, and, and so, sure. yeah, the engagement, the effort matters enormously. When people think of the word drive, they often think, oh, well, you have it or you don't. And that's where, again, I think we're wrong. I think that drive is something that can be encouraged by a you know, wonderful teacher, or by a terrific classroom environment, by an yeah. awesome soccer team that you're on. And it can be squashed as well. You uh, spent time uh, at the uh, military academy up in West Point. Uh, I would think that that pretty much anybody that reaches that point where you get to West Point or you get to Annapolis or Colorado Springs at the Air Force Academy, you know, you can pick the the institution. Uh, you have to have one, you have to have a little level of grit just to get there to begin that, with. <laughs> and then to be able to complete that may even have to take you to a totally different level. Yeah. The, the young men and women who make it through the admissions process to West Point are, without exception, above a very high threshold of grit. Yeah. That is you know, not at all controversy. That said, of course, they've now entered an environment where they're asked to do something that is even more challenging that, than anything they've done in their previous 18 years. Yeah. And so it, it's absolutely also the case that there's still variation in, in passion and perseverance when you get there, even though everyone's at a pretty high level. And I will say that, you know, in your four years of West Point, though I don't have the experimental data to back this up, I would argue that in those four years, you really grow as a person. And mm-hmm. so so they're recruiting really gritty young men and women. It is the intention of West Point Military Academy to increase their grit from the day they enter. I, I think I've heard several people, and I think it's one of those kind of lines you may hear from your parents one of the days that, you know, uh, they talk about uh, a grit being something that you kind of have, you know, you're, you may even be born with it. But you talk a little bit in the book about the fact that this is something that also can kind of be learned as well. And I think the also is crucial. People have always been asking, is it nature or nurture? Are you born with it or do you develop it? And the answer is absolutely both. So again, it would be naive to discount the role of genes. You know, kids are born with DNA that they didn't choose and that really influence every aspect of their psychology, including their grit. But there's also an enormous role for, for the people around them to nurture that nature. And I think the real question in my mind is, you know, what can we do with our genes, whatever they are, uh, to, to be our best self? How much can can you, and with some of these examples, I think you can kind of tell, but again, you know, it's the data that will really prove this out, is whether or not this is a, a, a more true uh, level, or I should say, proof of future success than, say, the SAT or an IQ test or, you know, something along that line? Well, I will draw here maybe uh, most conclusively from the research of Jim Heckman. He's an economist at University of Chicago. We collaborate closely. And Mm -hmm. he's actually probably done, I think, the most comprehensive work on human capital and what predicts achievement in as many domains as you can name crime, employment, relationships, uh, stability, uh, income, wealth. And what Jim Heckman would say is that what's very clear is that in the 20th century, economists thought it was largely cognitive ability or IQ. Mm -hmm. And in the 21st century, we're realizing that these quote-unquote non-IQ, or you could call them character strengths, uh, matter at least as much. 
I'm less interested in a horse race to see, you know, well, who comes in number one versus number two as just saying like, okay, well, this means that a lot of things matter other than our measured intelligence. So let's get to work on them. So it's it's just that that next level of learning in society that that we're putting in, uh, because, again, we're we're kind of in this time frame where. Uh, the data and the information is just as important as the process itself. Yet one could argue that the 20th century's major step forward was the semiconductor because that led to computers. And now information, like what you're dispensing right now, talking to each other, is free, right? And so there are no more barriers to entry to knowledge. So what will be the semiconductor of the 21st century? And my argument is that the, the semiconductor of the 21st century will be a solution to understanding behavior and behavior change. Angela Duck is our uh, guest. She's a uh, professor of psychology here at the University of Pennsylvania. She's also author of the book called Grit, The Power of Passion and Perseverance. You're listening to the Knowledge at Wharton here on Sirius XM 111 Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Uh, in terms of, uh, of, of passing this information on to students here at Penn or, or corporations, uh, what's the most probably important thing then for them to understand about the difference maybe between grit and and talent because there's probably a, a a large difference in the two and how it can affect your future success well, as Wharton students probably know already, people in business use the word talent in different ways. Yeah. Sometimes HR or uh, you know the CEO who's looking for a new hire just uses it really broadly to mean everything they're looking for, just everything. Uh, Other people use it more narrowly, including me. I define talent as the rate at which you get better at something when you try. And to be very talented means you get better faster and more easily than than other people or, or than other things that you try. Effort is, you know, your engagement. It's the quality and the quantity of your engagement cumulatively over time. And I think they multiply, if you will, to produce skill. And once you've got a skill and you can actually do something, you can write well, you can present well, you're good at solving problems, you have to apply effort to actually do something. It's the doers I I most admire. So I think as you think about yourself, you think, okay, well, what are my talents? And, uh, you know, what are the things that I'm really going to be willing to sustain effort in over the long term? In general, that second question is answered more by your interests and your yeah. values than by things like salary. So a lot of times then, then things that people are passionate about long time, like, you know, I have been in this industry now for 25 years now, but I've, I've always had the passion for this industry. So that is, you know, plays off a level of grit. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you were just telling me before we came on air that, you know, you get here before dawn and uh, start working well, anyway. Well, wake up, <laughs> wake up before dawn. I get here at about seven, but yes, okay. exactly. Yes. All right. Yeah. Fair point. You know, I, I was uh, observing that and thinking, you know, I'm, I'm not surprised. You know, this is somebody who loves what they do. You're yeah. probably never bored of it. I mean, that's a real, you know, <laughs> get thing. tired, but tired not bored. Tired and bored. But yeah, right. exactly. Tired and bored are, are different things. Yeah. And I would say the same in my job. It's not that there aren't headaches, that there aren't, you know, disappointments, sure. but to love what you do, I think, requires a level of intrinsic interest. And the only thing I want to encourage young people about this is, you know, if you introspect a bit and you think, wait, I don't have a passion and you're panicking, well, it just realize it develops over time. Is that why we maybe are seeing, and it's a story we've seen play out here on this show, and obviously we've seen it out in, in society, is that we're seeing more and more entrepreneurs out there. And people are kind of following that passion. It's not necessarily, you know, they may, and you're an example, you may go to work at, you know, on Wall Street or in a hospital or as a lawyer for a few years, 
But then you make that career shift and you kind of follow something else that you really have a love for. I think the most successful people in life are really following something that they could say, I love what I do. Right, and, right. and uh, you know, most people can't say, oh, I love what I do because I make a lot of money or I love what I do because, right. you know, there are free snacks in the kitchen. I mean, that's <laughs> all well and good. But that helps. So. It helps. It helps. You know, free snacks are great. But uh, but yeah, I mean, loving what you do is a special kind of happiness. You, I, I made a couple notes in the book. Uh, and one of the things, getting back to talent for a second, uh, that you put in a little line in the book about, I guess, when you were uh, teaching in New York City and some of the kids that, that you were you were dealing with that you said, I guess, at times you were distracted by talent. It, it go into that. I, I think that when you are working with young people and you're trying to teach them something, right? And that, by the way, isn't just classroom teeper, uh, teachers. So many of us are in that mentoring role, right. trying to teach a young person something new. We can get easily frustrated by the kids that we're working with who are not picking it up as quickly as we hoped they would or thought they should. And I would often chalk up their lack of learning to their inability, to their lack of talent. Mm -hmm. And now I would say that really the question should have been, you know, what am I not doing here as a teacher? Mm -hmm. You know, how is it that I can get them to learn faster? It's, it's, I think, extremely unproductive to just, you know, lay the burden and the blame at the foot of the student. It's almost always the case that the teacher could do something right. differently or better. Do you think then we're going to see a, a, a shift in education then going forward because of this understanding that this has to be a factor in success for kids growing up? And obviously a lot is made on on the, the education that kids are getting, not only through their high school years to get them ready for college, but in kindergarten, first, second, third, and, and on up the chain. Yeah, actually forever, right? Because, yeah. uh, you know, there's no reason that you need to stop learning when you earn your diploma, whatever sure. diploma it is yeah. you're, you're working toward. Yeah, I hope there's a, you know, tectonic shift in how we think about learning. I think we should think about it as something that we do all the time that is massively influenced by our circumstances and not just by some level of innate ability that yeah. we you know, think we can't change. And even that I think is untrue. I think your ability to learn is something that actually changes and depends on your opportunities and and your experiences. Um, At the same time, I would urge caution. I think that when we swing wildly from, you know, one point of view to another, we think, oh, well, grit's the answer to everything. You know, it's all, you know, that's got to be wrong, too. It's got to be that we are judicious and say, okay, well, we're learning something new here, but let's not get ahead of ourselves. Let's not, for example, assume that Dr. Duckworth knows everything about how to change grit, which Dr. Duckworth does not. Right. Angela Duckworth is our uh, guest, and uh, she is the author of the book Grit, The Power of Passion and Perseverance, here on uh, Sirius XM 111, business radio powered by the Wharton School. Uh, Again, you bring up a lot of examples of different people in this book, and there were two that I, uh, they're at, at absolute opposite ends of, of the spectrum, but I think they're interesting to bring up. One is Warren Buffett, which obviously I think a lot of people listening to this channel know the level of success that he has had. Uh, but another one is Will Smith, the, the actor and, 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 you know, the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, you know, going back to you know, my little younger days. How, how did those two kind of play into the, the theories that you're trying to bring forward? Well, first, I will say that, you know, I'm not like hanging out with Warren right. Buffett or yeah. Will Smith on nice. Saturdays. Nice. I would absolutely love to hang out with either or both of them at the same time. Um, but, you know, I think that the attraction for me to people like Warren Buffett and Will Smith is um, somewhat, you know, their success in that I can, you know, try to reverse engineer who they are, you know, who are 
are these outliers? Like, mm-hmm. what are they like? But actually, it's more that I find them both to be very psychologically perceptive. When you read Warren Buffett's annual letters, you yeah. think to yourself, or at least I do, oh my God, this guy's a world-class psychologist. Yeah. And when I listen to Will Smith, I got to listen to him in person recently, but you know, generally, you know, you watch YouTube videos and you read interviews. He is an extraordinarily psychologically perceptive human being. And I guess I feel like they have insights that I see in my own research, but uh, the way that uh, Warren Buffett and especially Will Smith express them, they're just yeah. like way more fun to listen to. I guess if you think about it from a business perspective and you think about the different segments of business out there, a lot of people might say, okay, well, th- especially with passion and, and you know, following your love, a lot of people would say, okay, well, that may be something that's more geared for the arts. Uh, you know, if you're a musician or if you're an artist or, you know, what, or an actor, whatever that might be, that that's probably not the case. I mean, you Warren Buffett, I would think, has a level of passion for business that probably not many people have out there. Yeah, it's not, you know, I don't think passion is something that is reserved for the creative arts. Yeah. Uh, though, of course, those people are passionate. But, you know, I've met midwives who are passionate about what they do. I've sure. met middle-level managers <laughs> and salespeople <laughs> who are passionate about what they do, pharmaceutical representatives. I mean, I think that if you really actually get into something and you you find things that are maybe when you're 18, you couldn't even anticipate that right. like you would fall in love. But there are elements like, oh, I love working with people and complex problems. I, you know, I like jobs where I'm like on my feet all the time and, yeah. you know, I'm outside. There are elements that I think are hard to predict in advance, but they do come to define what you love. Perseverance. Um obviously it's part of the title, but it's also a little bit of an interesting thing because part of this is also being able to adapt when things don't go right. Uh, and not just kind of, oh, okay, okay, well, you know, now I'm done. I can't complete this project. But, you know, being able to kind of take the turn in the road and get back on path. You know, I think that in some ways people think that perseverance must mean, you know, kind of bullheadedly just heading in one direction no matter what. But, <laughs> you know, when you keep hitting a brick wall, that's it's it's not perseverance to keep hitting it. It's right. perseverance to take a step back, maybe a moment or two to reflect, and maybe you need to turn left. You know, I mean, the, the, the thing to be sticky about, the thing to be tenacious and uncompromising about are, you know, your, your higher level values, the kind of telos uh, that guides what you're doing, that has many roots to it. And so oftentimes what it means to be persevering is to take a day off and to like get your bearings or to, you know, quit a project even and start a new one because you realize that this is a better way forward. But is it is it hard for a lot of people to truly understand that and to be able to you know, want to take the step back to take the two steps forward. You know, even for me, it's hard, right? And I I guess the only advice I would say is that this is why friends and advisors and former professors you're still in touch with and sisters and uncles are, you know, they're all so important because it is oftentimes more clear in their mind's eye what the right thing to do is than Mm -hmm. your own. You're so immersed in circumstances. So one bit of practical advice is, you know, have a few people you really trust and lean on them. Ask right. them, like, God, am I being an idiot here? Or should I be doing something differently? Is that even hard, though, to do at times? And I would think, again, if you have friends to help you out, that that's a benefit. But I would think it's hard to do that sometimes in the corporate environment, 
because of how businesses can be structured, although some businesses are changing that kind of philosophy and, and it may make it a little bit easier. You know, it is a reality that there are, I think, corporate cultures that don't reward vulnerability, that don't yeah. re- you know reward uh, dependency on, on another. But truly, the world-class businesses, the ones that are doing the best and yeah. will continue to do the best, are ones where there you know people come to work and it's a high trust environment and it, you know they don't have to lie they can say that they had a bad day or they can say oh god you know i made a bad decision yeah. and i need to actually fix it but first i need to own it so i i hope that people will end up in the corporations that have the positive workplaces if you don't you can still rely on you know a confidant uh, that's you know that that's someone that you've met uh, early on and really trust or you know sometimes it's someone outside the workplace well we think about this as we've talked a lot about the this you know how it if it will affect schools but obviously this could have an effect on businesses and it may be another one of those ideas that if you can get that belief from the c-suite on down you know obviously most companies they want to see bottom line results but they also want to see their employees successful and happy in the process doing it and that kind of, I think, plays into this as well. You know, the wonderful thing, I think, about the modern psychology on on achievement and on happiness is that, you know, it does not seem to be an either-or. It's not a trade-off. I think the happiest uh, workers are, are almost always the most productive ones and vice versa. Right. So you can actually, I'm not saying it's easy to do, but you can absolutely strive to, can, can, uh, you know, to, to build an environment that encourages both happiness and success. And, and that ends up, going back to what we were saying a second ago, it ends up being very important for kids because I think a lot of people ha- have believed that in some level, education has kind of gotten into this hand-holding, you know, what can I do for you, Johnny or Jane? You know, and, and we've almost gone way over the edge in terms of trying to help kids out and help them do things rather than them learning things and kind of building a little bit of that tough skin on themselves. You know, decades of of research on parenting confirms that really kids need both loving support and demanding yeah, challenges right. yeah. to do well. And and so if you only give one, if it's only praise and, you know, you're so great and there's never challenge, that's not good. But on the same uh, note, if kids are just always told you like, oh, that's not good and that's not good. And they're never told that, hey, you're a great person. And I love you. That's not good. Uh, you know, not, not easy to do, but certainly easy to strive for or clearly what we should strive for is challenge plus support. Just as long as it's not the parent, you know, you have the good cop, bad cop philosophy. Yeah. You don't play with that? Well, I have a, a husband who's, uh, I would argue, a much better parent than I am. But yeah, it's it's better to have consistency. So yeah. another uh, fact from the parenting literature is that consistency is much more effective in parenting than inconsistency. How do you think then that this will play out o- over the next couple of decades? Because if if our kids are kind of learning some of these principles and having more grit as they are coming up through school, and obviously that will play out in college, and then into business, what kind of effect do you think that will have on business when these kids get to that level? Well, to paint a very optimistic picture, it's, you know, it's a wonderful world. You know, people yeah. uh, can sit next to you on the train and when they open their laptop and you get in a conversation, they can say, you know, I love what I do. Um, yeah. And, and you know, they can be engaged in a way that, you know, at the extreme, they could say like, yeah, it's a calling uh, for me. Uh, that would be, I think, a, a terrific uh, world. I don't see, sometimes people are like, oh, well, you know, what would happen if everybody were like this? Would that be a terrible thing? And I think quite the opposite. I think it right. would be wonderful. 
useful. I do think, though, at the same time, that really the the seismic shift that's going on is that if you compare how we interact with each other today versus 100 or 200 years ago, you know, we're much more, I think, empathic and psychologically wise than we were than our four, you know, our forefathers and our, you know, our ancestors. I think in general, it's not just grit, but many other qualities like emotional intelligence that, you know, we're learning more about. And it's not just the scientists who know about it. It's it's everyone. And I think that's a very good thing. Is it helped or hurt by the fact that we're in such this digital society and we live on our smartphones and and we don't communicate face to face or, you know, on the phone as much as as we did when we were younger? I was recently having a conversation with Ariana Huffington, and of all yeah. people, you know, the founder of the Huffington Post, yeah. she was saying that one of her number one priorities is to get people off the de- their devices. And she she recognized the irony of that, too, right? And I <laughs> yeah, said, right, wow, yeah. when you're saying that, I think that really means a lot. Um, I will say this, you know, very clearly from scientific research, when people spend a lot of time on social media, they think they're getting social interaction, and they think yeah. they're actually happier. But in many studies, you actually feel worse about yourself, in part because I think social media paints a very unrealistic realistic view. It's like always sunset and your hair always looks good and yeah. it's always your birthday and everybody's always beautiful. And and that's actually not reality. What I think I'm uh, hoping is that uh, digital technology enables rather than hinders human development. Yeah. And, and that's uh, not going to happen unless we're intentional about it. I think if you just uh, kind of let market forces do what they will, you may not end up with digital technology helping. The book is Grit. Uh, Angela Duckworth is the author of The Power of Passion and Perseverance. Great meeting you. Thank you very much for coming in. Thank you. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.